Hello everyone and welcome back to Talking Points with KPI. Today we have episode 25. Now last week we talked about our arm care and today we're going to talk about the myths around arm care. So I have Justin to my left, Eric and Dan to my right. They are going to help me in this conversation. Uh, we're just going to kick it off and get right after it. Uh, first myth we have, pitchers should ice for recovery. I mean there's quite a bit of research that ice really doesn't do uh, anything actually can impede recovery. Uh, our body's natural response to soft tissue trauma is to get inflamed to send blood to the area because blood heals. So ice actually does the opposite out of vasoconstricts veins and, and restricts blood flow. So, um, you know, it, it's one of those things that that caught traction, you know, back in the day, I think it was the 60s if I remember right, where there was actually an amputee and the doctor put the limb on ice and was able to revive that limb and then, then it just stuck for everything that was related to injuries basically past that. And there's been no, no research whatsoever that ice can help with recovery and, and tissue repair and stuff like that. Um, you know, the, the doctor that came up with, with rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation a few years ago actually came out and said, hey, I was wrong. You wow. know, like we shouldn't be doing this. Yet medical doctors and, and, and people in the know are still prescribing ice as a as a recovery modality, which like I said, there's just there's just no research behind it at all. Yeah. I think I think there's times where ice can be appropriate. You know, if you roll your ankle and it hey, blows up like crazy. Bruising. But like you shouldn't be injuring your arm yeah. uh, when you're pitching. Yeah. <laughs> right? right. If, if if you're dealing with an injury, then you should consult a physician or a doctor and a PT or somebody that then can prescribe the correct uh, rehab and, and you know, correct modalities to use to get you healthy. Whereas if you're a healthy pitcher, you're going out and competing, like it's no different than going into the, the weight room and working out. Yeah. Uh, and there's been studies done where uh, very common in football is, is ice baths. Mm. And they'll go and they had a group of athletes train and lift, and the other group would train and lift, the other group would just go, and then group two would hop in ice baths. Yeah, and they saw you know the, the group that did not do ice baths had better recovery, gained more muscle mass, gained more strength, mm. uh, and they had better benefits uh, from just not using ice. And so I like into that. Like if you hop into the weight room and you do a regular workout, like you, you don't you shouldn't need to ice after a good workout. Well, it's like it's like the same. It's a simple method with the car. Like you you can start a cold car still, but it works better when it's hot. It just it's a simple. It's not even I'm not gonna say simple science, but it just makes sense that. Yeah, I think, I think of like, I always use this analogy, like if you were to cut yourself and your body wants to recover, it's going to send blood there. Mm -hmm. And the blood flow is good. Mm -hmm. So anything that we're gonna do after throwing, um, and it, you know, if you ice and you stick by it, and that's what you wanna do, like it's not gonna get you hurt, mm -hmm. but they're just better options. Yeah. So we wanna promote blood flow, and we want to have a, a post-throwing routine that uh, returns range of motion to the muscles that are getting beat up, returns blood flow to those areas too, uh, and does it at a intensity and at a level that promotes recovery uh, and, and icing is just not the best option. Yeah, I know we're moving on, but our friends over at Mark Pro, uh, markpro.com, they actually have a lot of um, blogs mm -hmm. about this with some, with some pretty good research. So that it'll be more in depth than what we just presented, but it's, uh, it's good stuff for sure if you, if you want to do some go more check research it out. on ice. Yeah. yeah, go check it out, Mark Pro. Um, so we'll move on, but now the next thing is, I mean, me and Justin have probably dealt with this issue ourselves you guys sure have as pitchers um but pitch count there's a lot of negative connotation to a lot of pitches but i want to hear the myth behind the pitch count and so, why it hurts the athletes well justin start with this one yeah yeah i think with pitch counts in general it gets contextual in the sense of like 
what is a pitch count that's too much for that individual. And a lot of times we put like a finite number on that baseline for all individuals. Um, and a lot of times like the stress that comes throughout a game, you can't finite it to one specific pitch or, you know, it kicking in at pitch 40. Like the stress is stress, whether, you know, you get it early in the game, late in the game, I think um, it doesn't really matter. Um, and that's where pitch counts can kind of get into a tricky situation um, where you can't actually finite, like find the, the pitch that it actually happened on. Um, so that, that's a little bit more contextual. And I, it, it's, it's going to be a controversial thing to say, but it's the truth. Like since the pitch smart um, system came down while well intentioned on limiting pitch counts and having days of rest, uh, there's a couple things that go wrong with it. One, it doesn't factor in time in the season, how a pitcher's built up, all those contextual things. And then two, uh, I know Dan found some research on this that most coaches aren't even following the guidelines that are given to them by the pitch yeah. smart. You know, so like one, it, it, it's too too big of a blanket uh, to put on everyone. And then two, most a lot of coaches aren't following it, so it's it's kind of defeats the purpose of. So again, well intentioned, but probably not the. Um, Things works best when you do yeah. what they're yeah. intended for. And I think we probably should have prefaced this. The whole purpose of this conversation and the foundation of which we're having this conversation yeah. is injuries are getting worse. And so we'll, if, I will if preface, we're not here to just nag on yeah, all not, these different situations. Yeah, yeah, no. And we'll provide some solutions too, yes. right? Uh, I think that you know, we wouldn't be having these conversations about these things that like, you know, I, I'm in the middle road between when he played and when you guys played, and it's really not that long ago, but things have not changed in the last 10 to 15 years. And so if things have gotten worse, meaning more kids are getting hurt, more kids are missing time, Tommy John, rotator cuff, like all these issues are getting worse and worse, and these things have been implemented within the time frame of when I was going through and playing. It's like, okay, we've got to do something different. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think that that's where this conversation had, and, and pitch counts is a good example, but it, is, it, it can be either used as a cop-out from a, a coach or a parent, oh, well, they only threw 40 pitches. Mm-hmm. And it's like, like well, okay, well, well, what were those 40 pitches? Was it all in one inning? Yeah, there's a difference between over stressful pitches and non-stressful pitches. Yeah, exactly. Were they cruising and throwing you know, at like 50, 60% intent because the, the kids they're playing against suck and they don't have to? Or was like, I'm throwing... When I played, I threw as hard as I could every single time I pitched. So 40 pitches for me was way more intense than somebody who had really good mechanics, was really efficient, and, and the stress on their arm was just different. So. And I want to jump in and kind of just hammer that on another myth that we actually forgot to write, write down is that you know throwing overhand is inherently unhealthy for the body. Mm. There's actually a lot of studies that, from an evolutionary point of view, like when we were evolving and kind of finding our way, we actually used, we're the only species that actually throws overhand yeah so that you know it was a way that we could fight off um basically animals in the wild to kind of stay safe so uh it is genetically ingrained in us to throw overhand so you know how we do that the stress we put under how hard you throw yeah those are those are part of the context but you know it's a very useful trait that we have as humans uh, to throw well yeah i mean you never see anybody complaining about a javelin and that's purely over like that's the most overhead you could possibly get in a throw And they, they praise those people because of how limber their arms are, how much they're able to move their body. But if you put that in the same scenario in this facility, I feel like a lot of people would have a different opinion on that. And I think that leads to our next solution. When it comes to pitch counts, I think it's something you balance, you're balancing two entities, capacity and demand. Mm-hmm. Capacity is just like, what is my arm and my body build up for? And the demand is both volume, the number of throws, and the intensity, how hard I'm throwing. And so we know that volume and intensity need to be inversely related, meaning if volume is high, intensity needs to be low, or the chances of getting injured are going to be high. Mm-hmm. And then we know if intensity is really high, like we need to make sure we're managing how much volume that the athlete is seeing. 
and then we need to make sure we don't exceed their capacity because yeah. once we exceed their capacity then that opportunity for injury occurs and I think that the that pitch count component uh, doesn't lend uh, it's more and I've tweeted about this it is a program and a set of rules to follow yeah. versus a system that evolves and adapts and meets the needs of each individual mm -hmm. uh, and you know we're, we're hoping along with those other facilities providing really good actionable ways to keep athletes healthy whether it's uh, yeah. the, the Pulse, Pulse is a really good I think, yeah, product yeah. That, that tailors around more of like a throw count in the sense of like you're looking at the actual stress of each throw and not just the pitching aspect of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, you know, an athlete can go play shortstop for three innings and then go pitch and they made 15 throws across the diamond in that time frame. Um, that's still stress that's going on to the arm and it doesn't get incorporated into pitch count. You know, Pulse solves that in a way. Right. Yeah, um, yeah I'll cut you off here, sorry. I the pitch count, I think, is so funny. Oh, I only threw 40 pitches. Okay, well, if you threw four innings, you're going to throw eight, six to eight, maybe ten pitches in between four. each inning. Yeah. You're also going to throw a 20 to 30 pitch bullpen as a warm-up. So if you threw four innings of 40 pitches, like, oh, that's a light day. You've already thrown 100 pitches. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't account for the youth player who goes and plays catcher or shortstop or center field. Uh, it doesn't account for all that, too. And that, so. you know, that brings up my last point. You know, what's worth, what, what, worse, let's talk about a high school kid. It's May. Uh, they're four months deep into their high school season. Pitchers built up really well, not having any problems. Goes out and throws six innings, 98 pitches. And a lot of people would think that's too much. What's worse, or when they go to their summer ball team, on Friday they throw 29 pitches and stay below the pitch count uh, for pitch mark that allows them to come back on Sunday of the tournament. And then they go out and they throw a complete game on Sunday. Yeah. All right, and everyone think that's okay because you only threw 29 pitches. No, he's in recovery on Sunday. You know, he shouldn't be thrown again. So, um, you know, it's, it's super contextual, and it isn't just the blanket, oh, 100 pitchers are bad. It, it's, it's a ridiculous kind of premise. Yeah. And so we'll move on from now kind of looking at the data and seeing those numbers to a little bit of the mental side. And I know all of us as athletes have dealt it, and those of you watching have dealt with this. When you're in a little bit of a struggle and you're not feeling yourself, trying to, as an athlete, switch that mindset and be, I'm okay. I'm all right. I can do this. But talk about... From a coach's standpoint now, we're all coaches now, we all see that side of our athletes now. What should we encourage them to either think or to do in those moments? Tell the truth so we can help them. Yeah. Like that's a huge struggle with kids this age is they, they, they will tell you that they're fine uh, and they're not. And we can't help them unless they communicate well. You know, part of the relationship aspect of what we do in here is super important because we can get to know them so well and kind of figure out that maybe they're not feeling good, but to rely on a 16 to 18 year old kid to tell you the truth about how they're feeling is, is uh, it's tough. Yeah, it's not, it's not good strategy. Yeah. I think, I think we've all been there as, as former players. Yeah. You want to compete, you want to win. And you can't, you can't knock a kid for that. No. But we as coaches have to be the ones that protect them. And especially with the younger they're at, like there's so much more baseball ahead of them that we, we need to protect them from uh, uh, themselves, pretty much, right? Uh, and I think with, with this, piece is, is the subjectiveness of, of, uh, of being a coach, like the art side. And you can tell there are signs when kids are tired, fatigued, their arms hanging, like good coaches take those kids out of games before they even get to that point. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, that kid being fatigued or tired or at the risk of being injured is not going to be able to compete and perform at a high level. So either way, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're going to get a kid hurt and you're going to lose games. So uh, this, I think this is the, the myth of uh, I'm good. Yeah. Right? Like, hey, coach, how are you on field? I'm good. I feel good. We're able to use the force plates to kind of monitor some of those things mm -hmm. as well as their stress levels and stuff. It's, yeah. a, it's that double-edged sword to an extent of which, like, you know, some athletes want to be, like, the best, the best tool you can have as a pitcher is to be available. 
Um, and so sometimes you want to hide those those na nagging pains and those those injuries from your coaches or your trainers or whatever it is because you want to be available. Um, but over the long run, like as a coach or whatever it is, like building that relationship with the athlete and being able to understand when they're when they're being truthful and when they're not and when it's actually affecting them um, from an execution standpoint is, is crucial and, and keeping guys healthy over the long long haul of a season or you know the long months of training or whatever it may be. Yeah, I think we've done a decent job of. of creating a, an arm care system that catches injuries before they happen. Uh, I think it's built on trust uh, and that relationship with the athlete of, hey, I care about you. I don't really care if you go win games or, you know, I care about your, you in the long run. Uh, the thing I'm excited for uh, is, you know, we really had, arm care system was grip testing <laughs> for a long time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it had enabled us to have that conversation in an objective way. We've added force plates, which gives us even more insights to that athlete's fatigue levels. Uh, the armcare.com program that we're going to be rolling out, uh, you know, we're going to master it this spring, we're going to roll out come summer, and we're going to just continue to find more and more ways to, to make sure kids are, are having the best opportunity to stay healthy. So I'm going to skip down on our list and kind of stay on the mental side of things. Um, but a lot of athletes and even a lot of coaches that have not a lot of experience in the PT side of things, um, when a kid says they're sore in a certain type of muscle, there's d certain things that do happen, but I want to hear what you guys think should happen when an athlete comes to you and he goes, hey, uh, my, mu uh, my muscle's a little sore in my arm. Yeah, I'd say this is the most common cop-out. Oh, it's just muscle. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, it's, it's just my bicep. Or it's just my tricep. Or it's just the muscle in the back of my shoulder. Like, it's, it's just muscle. It'll be fine. Uh, you know, your, your muscles are what are protecting your joints. So if they're getting beat up, then I liken it to, that's a yellow light. Your body sends you a signal, hey, pay attention. Uh, and if you keep banging into the same muscle, mm -hmm. and you do that over and over again, the body is going to figure out a way to get around that discomfort and pain, compensation, and then obviously chances for getting injured goes up. So uh, th this is one that I hear a lot. You know, I ask every parent when we sit down for the assessment, hey, like, where's your arm get sore when you throw when you pitch? Like, oh, never, n nowhere. So I go, oh, uh, did you ever get sore in your elbow? No, 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 never in the elbow. Oh, what about in your shoulder, like the, the top front? No, no, no. Your bicep ever gets sore? Like, oh yeah, a little bit. It's like, okay, <laughs> that is something that we need to pay attention to. And I think it's, again, that's that easy cop. Oh, it's just muscle, it'll go away. Everything matters. It's, 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 and it's a professional's job to kind of interpret what actually matters the most. Mm -hmm. But everything matters. Every soreness matters. Yes. Um, and, you know, I guess we can kind of just skip to the next one because we're on this. And I'll let Dan go off on this one because this is his jam. But, yeah. you know. A lot of people think that if there's muscle soreness, just pops some ibuprofen to kind of flush out the inflammation, and there's just. And you again. see a lot of college athletes now talk about that, how they Rope take up. them before their starts, and it. it I would I would say at that point it works as a placebo effect for you mentally because it's not truly doing anything. You're just adding more injury on at the time, and it's not recovering anything. It's just giving you a peace of mind, and my arm's going to be okay because I took two ibuprofen. The majority of the athletes that we deal with in this building should not throw through pain. And then if we, on two fronts, if we are medicating them or themselves, self-medicating to get through pain, like that is a, a habit that we're forming that they're gonna keep for the rest of their lives once baseball ends. So if I'm in pain, I'm gonna take something to get that pain to go away. So that could be a problem, number one. Number two, uh, ibuprofen specifically, if you overdose it, which is not gonna kill you, but if you overdose it, which most kids will take several times the amount that they should, uh, free floating testosterone, which testosterone levels drop over chronic use. So, and we know that testosterone is something that the male body needs. So, uh, you know, I, I think that 
it's, it's a, a myth in itself that is actually fixing the problem. Yeah. Uh, I think it can be used correctly when it, you know, prescribed by a doctor or physician saying, hey, after you throw, if this is something that you need to help with your recovery process, if that person recommends it, I'm, I can't overrule a doctor. Yeah. Uh, but most kids just grab you know, your Costco-sized bottle of ibuprofen. Just take it with pop, them. You pop six of those bad boys and you go Skills. out and compete. And yeah, I mean, yeah. You, we've been around it in yeah, college. We, we all did them. it. We yeah, all we did just, it. It just, it's, like I said, it, at least for me, it was like a little bit of a peace of mind. It's like a placebo effect almost. Yeah. Um, but then you learn that it, it doesn't well, do it. I think, <laughs> before we move on to the next one, like, if you're 18 years and older and you're in college, like that's really when I started. Yeah taking ibuprofen but I'm hearing stories of 12 13 14 year olds parents giving them ibuprofen so they can go and play yeah. and it's like like what are, like what are you doing like no game at that age is that important True. for have your kid have your child to play through pain um, so they can win, you know, win a trophy or whatever it may be so um, so we'll go into kind of equipment now so we use a lot of weighted balls in this facility and when weighted balls first started coming around, I remember driveline got a lot of flack because they were getting people injured with these weighted balls. You shouldn't throw heavy things. That was the thing. Um, talk about how you've seen your athletes not only excel by using these weighted balls, but also the myth around it. I think a good, a good kind of point to, to highlight with this is that stress, stress can be good, right? And so when we're looking at underload and overload in regards to training the, the arm to get into different ranges of motions or be able to handle different ranges of motions, um, understanding that like the underload ball trains peak force and then the overload ball trains total force so like those are two adaptations that we need to have happen when we're training athletes to throw harder you know so using overload underload focus is, is, a, is a good training modality um, but paying attention to how that's actually affecting the athlete and then the age of the athlete and not going too far in the overload or too far in the underload and kind of giving them a balance between the two and just using it as best as you can for that athlete and there's plenty and I mean plenty of research about weighted balls and the different stress levels according to different weights. Driveline's done a great job with this stuff. Um, basically what they've found and the, what they're displaying with some of their new tech and studies is the heavier balls actually decrease stress on your arm. Mm. Um, you know, and kind of the real example that I kind of use for most people is like, hey, like, you know, football weighs 16 ounces, I think, 15 ounces. Uh, no, one, no one complains about anyone throwing around a football and guess what quarterbacks get hurt at way less rates than baseball pitchers yeah. um, so it's just it's one of those fallacies that's out there uh, I think it's kind of uh, an easy go-to for old school coaches to kind of point out at, at that as a reason why kids might get hurt but there's just there's no objective research behind it yeah I think that I like I always use the weight room as an example oh deadlifting hurt my back or bench pressing hurts my shoulder and it's like well no like it, it's how you do it Right? I think majority of kids that use weighted balls do it where they just get the free program online, they buy the weighted balls and start chucking them in the backyard. Yeah. Uh, and it's no different than buying the bands and doing the band routine and saying, oh, bands made my knee throw harder or hurt my arm. Uh, it's no different than following a random long, long toss program. Like, I think that it's, it's the implementation and how you use the tool. It's not the tool itself. Uh, and I think more times than not, it's somebody who has no business uh, using the tool because yeah. <laughs> they have no clue what they're doing uh, or there's no uh, accountability or supervision on uh, uh, how to use use it and use it appropriately um, and then you know I, I also again, use the weight room example like if you're in the weight room and you only squatted 135 pounds because that's the safest weight for you to squat mm -hmm. we're not going to get much from, from that because there's not stress there's not enough stress and so we have to we have to go again go back to our demand and capacity piece we have mm. to change the volume and intensity and then volume intensity can be changed by throwing different implements um, and I, I, again I, I think it, 
it's an easy cop-out just to say, oh, that one thing is what causes it. Long toss used to be the big one, right? Oh, long toss causes arm injuries, right? Oh, throwing off the mound causes arm injuries. Or you should only throw flat grounds because flat grounds are less stressful than throwing off the mound. And that's another, I guess we should add that as another myth. Yeah, we yeah. did <laughs> some, some research on that. That's not, that's not true. So, um, yeah, weight, weight of balls is, is the easy cop-out right now to go towards what's causing arm injuries. Lack of strength is the cause for most arm injuries, and that armcare.com has nice, nice research on that as well. Um, weighted balls is a way we can build up strength. And that's an overly simplistic thing to say, but it's you know baseline truth, yeah. It also enhances movement patterns, right? We're trying to uh, put the body in a better position to withhandle the stress. If they're moving inefficiently, like the overload, underload can help create better movement patterns, inevitably make it more efficient, and then reduce the stress that's being put on that arm or wherever it is in the body that they're getting stressed. Absolutely. Yeah, last one on this. I think it's, if you have kids who have an arm issue or, or are returning from an arm issue or have command issues, give them a football. Mm. And they'll very quickly see they can't throw spirals. No. It's because they're inefficient in their arm action and they're inefficient with the way that they, they can handle load, which is because the ball's heavier, they're weak, and they have bad throwing mechanics. Yeah. <laughs> so. This is, at least in my time of playing, this has been a new topic, um, running. So a lot of baseball players, after you get done pitching, especially pitchers, a lot of old school coaches would tell you, hey, just go get your poles in, run your poles, and that, that was good. And then all of a sudden, I don't know, maybe within the past five years, everybody has told everyone to stop doing poles. Let's do sprints, a lot of sprint work, quick twitch work, no more poles. Um, but why, I want to know with you guys, why do you guys think that the poles are a good thing? If not, and I'm not bashing sprints. Sprints are good. You should do your sprints, but also make sure you do your long running. I think the, the, I liken it to you need an aerobic base. So you need to have a, a basic level of conditioning, which you can build up via you know, long, term, long distance running or being on a bike or being in the pool or something. But at a certain point for baseball players, that uh, tool, that skill, uh, or that quality, this is a better way of saying it, uh, is heavily outweighed by being explosive and fast yeah. and powerful. Uh, and so uh, for, from that front, we want to sprint and we want to, to train the body to be explosive, just like it is in the batter's box and on the mound. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from a recovery standpoint, lactic acid isn't bad. Yeah. The body produces it as a way to get energy in a time when it has no other avenues. Like there is hard research on this. Yeah. Lactic acid Gosh. doesn't cause soreness. It doesn't cause muscle damage. It's not what we're trying to flush. The body actually produces it to help you get energy in a time when you don't have enough time to get it from other sources. So, you know, sending your, your, your pitchers out to go do long distance running thinking you're going to flush the lactic acid, you could have them sit in the dugout, lay in their back, and the body's going to flush that lactic acid out on its own. Yeah. But in all reality, you probably want it there because it's what's helping the body function at that yeah, time. It's more so just being efficient with time. You know, from a coach's point of view, like a lot of coaches think that they're going to go have pitchers run poles, and that's their conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, if that's the only thing they're doing, it's, it's an incorrect thing to prescribe. Uh, so if we have a finite amount of time to do training, uh, recovery work, whatever a coach wants to call it on the field, um, you're going to get much better bang for your buck and transfer over to the actual skill by doing sprints, by doing jumps, by doing plyos, stuff like that, because mm -hmm. you know a pitch is a three to five second total body explosion followed by a 15 second rest. Yeah. Okay. Copy that as much as possible in your training sprint work instead of uh, what long distance running is, which is a slow, unexplosive uh, exercise that's, that's Continual, yeah. which it doesn't mimic the, the pitching. Uh, 
environment very well. It's training the body to preserve force and energy over a long period of time, which pitching is the complete opposite of that. So is hitting, right? We need we need what we have right now, and we need to use all of it in the time frame that we have. We don't need to preserve it. And long distance running can train the central nervous system or the body to preserve that, and it can be a bad thing in most in some cases. Mm-hmm. So this is another contextual one. It's like kind of the same thing around the pitch count, but overuse. We hear a lot of that word. Uh, and especially in certain big tournaments, like oh that kid was overused. You shouldn't have been. You shouldn't have seen that kid many that many days, or shouldn't have pitched that many pitches in that day. Um, I just want to hear you guys' opinions about it. Why should you be talking about it at the summit this weekend? Um, but in regards to like being overused, it's it's prepare like overusing them based on the stress that they were prepared for. So a lot of times like you don't on ramp them correctly, or they haven't been pitching you know multiple innings in a really long time, and then you all of a sudden go throw five innings like. Yeah, five innings might not be a lot, but if they were only throwing an inning for a long period of time before that, you know, that's overuse in regards to the stress they were getting beforehand. It, it, people like to throw overly simplistic solutions at complex problems. Mm-hmm. Overuse in pitchers is a very complex problem. Uh, everyone latches onto the 100 pitch number. Like if you stand under 100 pitches, you're, you're, you're not being overused. If, if, if a high school coach goes out and throws a kid February 17th in their first game, 95 pitches, He's an idiot. He like he stayed under 100 pitches, but there's no way that pitcher is built up for that kind of load and stress early on in the year. And the numbers back that up. In Major League Baseball, 70% of arm injuries happen in the first two months of the year. So it isn't the 100 pitches. It isn't the innings. It's them being brought along too fast, and their body's not adapted to the stress that's that's, that's being placed upon it. Uh, in Major League Baseball, the, the month with the lowest injury rate is September. That's the last month of the regular season. Less arm injuries happen in September than happen in March and April, so it, it's pretty glaring, you know, research and information that mm-hmm. it, it's not, yeah. you know, overuses, like Justin said, it's contextual to where the pitcher's at as far as what they're ready for and built up for. Very true. Uh, I'm notorious for using analogies. I, again, I like this to the weight room. If you went and you had not worked out and lifted weights for six months and I took you through a workout and said, hey, we're going to max your bench, your squat, yeah. your deadlift, we're going to do as many push-ups and pull-ups as possible, you're going to be trashed. You're not likely going to do something debilitating and, and you know hurt yourself and have to get surgery, but that's the equivalent of again the average kid right now. Like we have the most sedentary population in the history of mankind. Kids spend hours upon hours a day sitting at a desk, looking at a screen, mm-hmm. on their phone, and playing video games. Like we our kid, like the average high school baseball player. We put this softball too, but the average athlete is has under capacity their capacity is so low that anything they do out on a field or on, on a court is beyond what they're capable of and so we have to be aware that as we get closer to season to to on-ramp that's a term that we use a lot of facilities use like build them up prepare their bodies for the stress whether that's in the weight room on the field or on the court wherever it may be um, you know that that's that overuse term. Uh, yes, you did overuse <laughs> that area. You did 100%. They're not wrong. Your capacity is so low that it does. You could have done. You could have thrown one inning or a hundred innings. <laughs> you you had no capacity for any of that this if, time of year. If we have a kid that's coming out of not throwing, and two weeks later we're we're having them throw 20 pitches at 100%, we're overusing him yeah. at that point in time. You know, like so, it's very contextual. Yeah. So this topic, I assume, is going to be very short and quick. And I will say to everybody listening, if you're an athlete, if you're a parent, please stretch. Just the right way. The right way. Don't be stretching the wrong way. And I'm sure you're like, what's the right way? Well, we're here to tell you. And if you come out to KPI, we can also show you. Um, but especially for pitchers. I mean, you see a lot of pitchers with hip problems, arm problems. What kind of stretches do you guys see these guys doing? 
I'll turn this over to Dan because it's a lot about are they hypermobile and what kind of stretching is appropriate? Is more activation stuff appropriate? Is more dynamic or static stretching appropriate based on their physical profile? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so our, the, the joint by joint assessment will take all the athletes through here, help us understand like, is there a range of motion that you need to get before you go and compete? If you do, here's a specific exercise that's going to target that. Uh, is this the way you were born? You just don't have that range of motion at your shoulder, your hip. And if you try and stretch it, you're going to cause more issues than you're, you're going to help. Um, or, or is the reason your body can't get into that position is because you're weak mm -hmm. and you don't have the strength to get your arm into that proper arm slot. And so we need to activate those muscles. Uh, it's, it's the double-edged sword of the youth athletes, the double-edged sword of our baseball and softball players. Hypermobility is almost a prerequisite for being good. Like if you are not built where you have like double jointedness and hypermobile and your spine is really loose and your shoulders really loose, like you are going to struggle to find ways to create a lot of power and whip. Um, but majority of the baseball players and soft players who are really, really good are. And so it, it not really, all majority. majority, yeah, I'd say majority, not all, but the majority of the ones, because the kids who aren't hypermobile are going to filter to other sports because they're not going to be able to have the same power up. It's, it's, gymnastics is a good example. Like, you can't do the splits, you ain't doing gymnastics. Yeah. <laughs> At a certain yeah. point, you're going to age out. Mm -hmm. And for gymnastics, that's going to be when you're really, really young. Uh, whereas baseball, like, you could have a semblance of success to high school, and then it becomes very apparent by the time you get to high school, like, you, you're not going to have the success that you necessarily want just because some of those genetic, you know, uh, mm -hmm. factors you had no control over. So. Um, you know, I'd say, you know, the stretch of doing the arm across here and the stretch here and the stretch here, like, uh, you, there's some very simple ways to figure out, do your athletes need to stretch or do they need to activate muscles before they throw? We have it all over our social media. I post yep. about it regularly. Uh, and it is as simple as coming in and getting, getting an assessment, but it is an area that catches parents' attention. They're like, hey, you should never stretch your shoulder ever again. I'm like, what? I said, every coach says you should stretch before you throw. You should 100% warm up before you throw. Don't throw to warm up. Uh, but depending on who you are, there, there are better options uh, stretching versus uh, you know doing other other exercises. Absolutely. And again, for those of you listening, I didn't think this would pair up so well, but it is. We're going to start doing weekly stretches. So for those of you at home that, like Dan said, it will be on the content sheet. It will be on the social media. So if you are confused and you're like, what stretches are they talking about? In the near future, we will have those for you to look at. Um, so we're going to move on. Uh, this is a big one. For I believe. I mean, I had this when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, Justin, all the, I mean, you guys probably too, but breaking balls cause arm injuries. I mean, you hear it all the time. I want to know why this is a myth. I think at the youth ages, the reason why it's a myth is that youth athletes usually change the mechanics of what they're trying to do to, based on the pitch they're throwing. So if I'm throwing a curveball, maybe I'm going to drop my arm a little bit lower. Or if I'm throwing a changeup, like I'm going to cast my arm a little bit more, whatever that is, and then that puts the body in a different position, and now we're putting more stress on the arm, but um, if the breaking pitches are taught to be thrown with the same movement patterns that we throw our fastballs with and things like that, like there's no research out there. Actually, Drivelines posted research and tested the, the torque that's being put on the elbow from pitch to pitch, and I think one of the only pitches was the splitter, and it only had to do with kind of the, the way that the muscles in the forearm were kind of working, right? So. Um, but I'm sure there's going to be more information coming out with, you know, the spider tack thing and some of the pitchers' flexors going up and things like that. But in regards to pitch, pitch by pitch, there's not really research out there that shows um, the stress levels change. Within the individual, so like not overarching, but like within, so like if we're all throwing, for your arm, velocity is one of the key indicators of stress to the arm. So him throwing, Justin throwing at 70 versus you throwing at 70, we can't say, oh, the stress on both your arms is the same. 
but we can say when Justin's throwing at 60 and then Justin's throwing at 70, well then when Justin's throwing at 60, that's less stressful on Justin's arm because the velocity which he's throwing, the stress he's putting in his arm, is lower. So we can't compare individual to individual. Uh, or, I'm sorry, we can't use a whole group and say everybody throwing 70 miles an hour isn't going to have an arm injury, but we can say within individual, at this velocity, that's going to equate to higher or lower stress, and we know with breaking pitches, they're slower. So yes, the position of your wrist, and that's going to alter how like the protection of the elbow and the shoulder. But the, there has been some research on like the, the pitch speed influences the torque at the arm, and so changeups and sliders and curveballs all move slower than, than your fastball. So your fastball is going to have the highest stress, especially when you're young. So I think again, this is the the simple answer of okay, oh you hurt your arm throwing curveballs. Yeah. Well, you also threw 90 pitches, and you're 11 years old. Yeah. It wasn't the curveballs, guys. It was definitely the, the you, you overused the kid. They had they have no functional strength to go out and do that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly. I don't want to take any ownership as the athlete or as the coach. So I got to blame some outside entity. That's yeah. really what all these myths are about when it comes to arm injuries. Mm-hmm. Nobody taking ownership for what's really happening uh, and, and trying to find that scapegoat. Oh, yeah. curveball, sliders, weighted balls, long toss, sprints, whatever. Okay, I'm going to find this other thing instead of saying no. Like I didn't listen to my body. I lied to my coach, or I, as a coach, dealing with a youth player and got hungry for that win and didn't care about this kid when they're 14, 15, 16 years old competing. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of these, these myths come from. So I'll just let you guys go into this, and so this won't be a topic for you guys, but speciali- uh, specialization excuse me, um, causes arm injuries. This is one I'm... I've written, I've written on this a decent amount, but it's, again, it's contextual. But I think a lot of people want to say, oh, if you focus on baseball at a young age, you're going to get hurt. It's just simply not really the case because it, it depends, you know. What's worse, uh, a kid is a full-time baseball player but also does a, a fully ingrained arm care program every day and is in a training facility like this and trains full-time. What's worse, that kid or the kid that comes out to high school baseball three weeks late from basketball season and is immediately put on the mound. Like, like, like I'll, I'll argue very efficiently that specialization is better for you in that circumstance. And then, you know, the, the, other, the other kind of avenue that comes into play is when, when these kids get to high school and they're thinking about playing college baseball, you know, and they make decisions sometimes to not play other sports. For a lot of kids, that's a good thing. It's hard playing college athletics. We know that. Baseball, you don't have to be overly fast twitch athletic like football and basketball to make it to the upper levels. So if we get a, an average sized athlete that maybe has a, has a trait, maybe he's a really good hitter or he does have a good arm but he's not a great athlete, he would have no chance of playing college in any other sport. It is good for him to specialize in high school and get really good at one thing to give himself the best chance to advance to the college level. So again, it's contextual, but it's just it's one of those things, you know, it's an overly simplified solution. People want to throw it a couple of times. I think the specialization piece is within that window of like five to 12. Yeah. Like we, we leave that part out. So oh, sports specialization is terrible. It's like, well, at a certain point, somebody has to make the decision. If I want to reach this goal, I have, I have to put all the time, energy, <laughs> and money into a certain thing to help me get there. And if you're gonna do it when they're eight years old, okay, that doesn't make sense because they have 10 plus years of development ahead of them. But if it's your sophomore year and you are below average on all of the metrics that you know you need to get to to play at the next level, you might need to take basketball off because yeah. basketball, like you said, bleeds into, into baseball season. Or, you know, football, like playing football, which starts in pretty much August and then goes all the way into halfway through the winter and the fall, like maybe that's not a good choice. 
because there's only so much time and energy. Well, I'll also give credit to our force plates as well here because we have athletes that do multiple sports and we've seen that. We've seen the data after they come after practice or they've had basketball the day before or have basketball the weekend before. These kids aren't as good as they were last week. Mm -hmm. And now they're still good. They're still performing at a high level, but it's just not the level that they were before they played basketball. Yeah. Um, so I completely understand the specialization. Yeah, and I, I just think it gets lost on like it really is within that window of probably five to maybe 14. Like play multiple sports, be a good athlete, go go be the shortstop, point guard, you know, quarterback, like go do that. But by the time you're 14, 15, 16 years old, like that is where you gotta make that decision. And I, I like this, you said from the beginning, like the kids who, like, oh, this guy, Patrick Mahomes, multiple sport athletes, like, yeah. Kyle, Murray, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, Kyle Murray, like, it, if you're that athlete, you know. Like, yeah. Yeah, those <laughs> yeah. are outliers. Yeah. It's like 100%. when college coaches tell high school kids, oh, we like multi-sport athletes. No, you like the best athletes, and yeah. the best athletes usually play multiple sports. Like, so, like, stop with the BS, you know? Like, yes. And there's not never been one college coach that won't recruit a really good baseball player because he only plays baseball. It's, yeah. it's nonsense. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's, that's the piece, because the reverse is what's going to happen. The pendulum goes always the opposite direction, right? Now it's going to go to, well, my kid plays every single sport, and I'm doing NJB, and I'm doing football, and I'm doing Pop, uh, Pop Warner, and I'm doing baseball, and I'm doing travel ball, and I'm doing my rec league, I'm doing Little League 2, and oh yeah, by the way, I also do this thing, it's like, yeah. your kid, like, is your can't kid a recover. kid? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah there's, like, there's no off-season anymore, because you're always in-season, it's just a different <clears> sport. Yeah. So it's, it's the same problem of just, like, not finding the right plan for your kid to get them to whatever their goals may be. Absolutely. So this will be the last topic. And most of the kids in our facility will probably, when they hear this topic, they'll be like, what are you talking about? Because we preface this a lot in our facility, and velocity is a big thing in this facility. Obviously, we've made videos on it. We've had velo competitions. But velocity doesn't matter for pitching with advancement and performance. Now, talk about that. Gotcha. That is... <laughs> oh, that's fine. I, it, it's, velocity matters a lot. And anyone who says that is silly like yeah. they're just they're, they're speaking nonsense velocity is the barrier of entry for college recruiting we know that uh, there's a extremely strong correlation with increased velocity uh, increases your performance and ability to play this game at the upper levels like it's just the the data is so strong yeah. and so sound and there's so much of it uh, now is that the only thing that matters in your pitching no but for people to get on social media and be like oh velo doesn't matter location that's it's it's like i said it's silly there's nothing there's no stronger correlator to pitching advancement uh, at the, in the professional level than velocity. It's the strongest correlator. Well, and I'll even go into the argument that you don't see the kid on Twitter that doesn't throw hard. That's just how it is. I mean, and, and people can go, I mean, we have comments of ball four, we had stuff and even in this facility, yeah. but it's, you saw it because he threw that velocity. Um, and I think that's where a lot of even coaches nowadays kind of get that misunderstood is that they're just trying to work hard. Yeah, they'll refine themselves yeah. like in the facility, but getting that velo is a big thing for them. Sometimes velocity enhancement and getting to a certain velocity is a it's a consequence of having a really good training program yeah. and having a good health base like you're not going to throw harder if you're not healthy you know so it's uh it's, like I said, it's one of those silly things that people throw out there I'll put, put this up on the you justin like have you seen yeah. kids whose velocity has gone up their other pitches elevate yeah 100 percent um I think it's more too, right? It's like if an athlete's throwing harder and the other pitches get elevated, like that enhances maybe the movement or the way that the pit hitters are seeing that pitch. And it comes down to basic physics in a sense. Is like as a pitcher, ultimately, you're just trying to alter the timing of hitters. So if you can get a pitch to get to the plate faster, 
like you have won in some way or another, and now hitters have to adjust, right? And it's the new wave of baseball now where hitters are adjusting to velocity and they're finding ways to increase their bat speeds or level out some of their swings to make that, that errors, those errors kind of smaller. And now pitchers are going the other route, like I'm gonna throw a sweeper slider now, or I'm gonna move it and throw a power sinker and kind of move you around the plate and mix up timing in that sense too. Um, and I think velocity can go a long way with breaking pitches as well. Right? If I can throw my slider eight miles an hour off my fastball versus 15, like I've now added um, you know, a new pitch that a hitter has to face in a game or something like that. Yeah, like, I liken it to, again, analogies, right? If you're in a car, and you take that car up to 100% horsepower, that car is gonna rattle, and it's gonna be hard to control, and if you're gonna try to make any turns, it's gonna be, be hard to control, right? Uh, and so majority of kids sit at that when they're out competing, because you're not gonna tell, like, no kid is gonna be on the mound trying to throw slow. Like, they, kids know throwing harder helps you get people out, right? And so if we raise that max, so then when they're in games, which is cruise control, they will have more control and command, and then, with us, when we have control over as coaches, we incentivize command to throw strikes and we run strike percentages and we run those reports. Uh, that's what then where like all of these metrics matter. But when you throw 65 to 75 miles an hour, it does not matter. Your, your command does matter yeah. because you better be perfect. Because yeah. if you're not perfect, you're getting smoked. You're, yeah, your error, your, your chance for error just slims down to right. nothing at that point. Right. Or, or like uh, there, the, remember one of our original clients, like, he could not throw an inside fastball. And it's not because he couldn't throw an inside fastball. He couldn't throw it there because it would get smoked. It was yeah. just like a 70, like even like a 78 mile an hour fastball on the inside half to a, a, varsity, a good varsity hitter, yeah. they're gonna hit that mile. So he had to nibble on the outside corner. So not only like velocity like does matter, like increasing it, like you said, like that term bandwidth, it gives you more opportunity for success on the mound. Uh, and so like, I think the part that I think of this saying when somebody says, oh, velocity doesn't matter. It means I don't know how to train that or teach that. So if I don't understand it, then it doesn't matter. And if I don't, I'm not going to take the time to learn that. I think that, that a percentage of coaches fall into that category. Um, and I, I think the, the other is that velocity, uh, command is subjective. Yeah. It's easy to, to say my command got better or worse because some outside entity is telling me that. It's not completely objective. Whereas velocity, if velocity goes up, then my training methods worked. Yeah. If velocity goes down, my training methods were bad. Anybody can be sitting on a bucket in a, in a bullpen and say, oh, that was a good pitch, right? Yeah. Because the subjectiveness of it lends to, I can dictate success so that I can get, make you pay me more money. Yeah. And I think that's where that velocity doesn't matter statement comes and from. And we also know, and a little bit of a different slant on this issue from a physiological point of view, that the body organizes itself most efficiently at close to its highest intent. Mm -hmm. So if pitchers are training for velocity and working on mechanics at higher intent, you're gonna get a better transfer to the game uh, with that concept. Well, they always say practice how you play. And if you don't practice at your peak performance, you're not gonna be able to play like that. Um, all right. That's it. That's it. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we, we could we keep rolling. I know, we could probably <laughs> go on forever. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, like I said, please be on the lookout for all our social medias. Um, if you do have another myth that you would like, please comment on our YouTube. Please subscribe. Um, and be on the lookout for those weekly stretches. We did talk about stretching. It's good for your body. So we'll be back on Talking Points KPI episode 26. See you guys next time.